Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to today's Cato Institute Capitol Hill briefing. I'm Kurt Couchman, Manager of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. Today we're going to hear about trade, as you all know. Uh, in our general standard format, we're going to have prepared remarks from both of our illustrious speakers, and then we're going to go to Q&A. So uh, while the discussion is going on, uh, please think of good questions to ask to expand the discussion. Our first speaker today is Dan Eikenson. He's Associate Director of Cato's Center for Trade Policy Studies. He focuses on WTO disputes, regional trade agreements, U.S.-China trade issues, steel and textile trade policies, and anti-dumping reform. Previously, he was the director of an international trade planning, or he was director of international trade planning for an international accounting and business advisory firm. He also co-founded the Library of International Trade Resources a consulting firm providing interactive information access and international trade consulting. Prior to that, he was also a trade policy and anti-dumping analyst for several international trade law practices in Washington, D.C. He's the co-author of the book, Anti-Dumping Exposed, The Devilish Details of Unfair Trade Practices, and he is the author of a, a number of studies and articles, including the subject of today's presentation, Made on Earth, how global economic integration renders trade policy obsolete. If you didn't pick up a copy on your way in, there's some out at the registration desk. And he's also the author of what I thought was a, a very interesting paper, and I would highly recommend it. It's called While Doha Sleeps, Securing Economic Growth Through Trade Facilitation. And the basic point of that is that even though we have these multilateral and bilateral agreements that are outstanding that haven't been brought to completion, there's a number of things that we can do to relieve bottlenecks to our trade, uh, specifically in infrastructure and also through customs practices. So uh, with that, I'll turn it over to Dan. Thank you. Kurt, I appreciate that. Thank you all for coming. Before I get into trade policy, which I know could be so boring, let me just start out with a little bit of good news, and that is you may have heard this morning perhaps the best news for which there's sure bipartisan support here in Washington. Uh, Vinny Serrato has resigned as Vice President of Football Operations for the Redskins. <laughs> Happy about that. Now we just have one more to go. That would be Dan Snyder. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, we'll talk about trade from, from here forward. So for those of you who haven't seen the paper or read it or even read the, the executive summary, uh, let me just synopsize it this way. It's the point of the paper is that uh, global economic reality has changed considerably uh, and has become much more 21st century, uh, but meanwhile, trade policy is still predicated on outdated assumptions, 20th century assumptions, even earlier uh, assumptions, and as a result, we really need to revise trade policy. The, the paper says uh, that this global economic integration renders trade policy obsolete. Maybe that's too strong of a title. I wouldn't say it is totally obsolete. I would say the way it's conducted now should be made obsolete. Uh, I think that there is a role for trade policy, but it's very different from, from what, we, what we have today. Policy today is predicated on this assumption that the global economy is divided between us and them. It is our producers against their producers, uh, when in fact commercial reality speaks to a much uh, greater, speaks to much greater uh, global integration, cross-border collaboration, uh, and cooperation. We are interdependent with producers uh, and other interests around the world. We've seen a proliferation uh, of, invest, uh, of cross-border investment, uh, transnational production and supply chains, chains all, all in response to 
developments over the course of the 20th century, uh, the reduction of economic barriers through the GATT, through trade negotiations, uh, reduction of political uh, barriers, the, the, you know, the, the, the fall of the wall, the opening of China to the West, and also technological changes. Uh, the cost of trans transporting goods has gone down considerably. <coughs> Container shipping is now a very prominent feature uh, of, of, of global commerce. And telecommunications uh, uh, costs have also uh, gone down considerably, so that we have a situation where the factory floor is no longer necessarily contained within four walls in the United States. The factory floor really does span oceans uh, and borders so that high value added functions in the United States can be complemented by lower skilled pr uh, production functions abroad. Um, some of the other assumptions that, that are problematic for me with, with respect to trade policy uh, is, are, are that the that the that the producer is 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 uh, a proxy for the national interest, that producer interests are a proxy for the national interest, and therefore trade policy should be conducted on behalf uh, of U.S. producers. Also, that this continuing notion that exports are good and imports are bad, uh, and 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 therefore trade policy should figure out a way to increase our exports while reducing our imports. Those are two presumptions I think that really don't don't hold water. And the third related presumption of current trade policy is that trade liberalization should be uh, a function of reciprocity. We should have trade agreements where we agree to open our markets if other countries agree to do the same thing. So uh, I, I, don't, I don't think that that really makes a lot of sense. It didn't before. It really doesn't now, given uh, uh, the, the emergence and proliferation of global supply chains and cross-border investment. The problem with treating, uh, considering the primacy of producers is that there are a lot of economic interests in the United States between a product's conception and its consumption. Uh, we've got engineers and designers, uh, financiers, the, you know, the venture capitalists, the bankers. Uh, there, there are marketers, distributors. Uh, there, are, there are producers and there are, there are more producers and there are retailers, as uh, Eric will talk about. So there are lots of uh, uh, interests in this continuum from product conception to consumption. Why do we go to bat uh, just for producers? Uh, the exports are good, imports are bad argument. Um, the benefits of trade really come on the import side. We really operate under a misconception that the goal of trade policy is to, is to expand exports. Sure, it's a good thing, but most of the benefits from trade come on the import side. When we open up our markets, we see greater competition. It, it inspires innovation, uh, and that is where most of the gains from trade, uh, that's where they come from. Um, but, but policymakers tend to be fixated on the trade balance. We should have a trade balance, or, or even better, a surplus. That should be the objective of policy. Uh, and as a result, that's why we have this need for reciprocity in our trade, uh, in our trade policy. The fact that reciprocity underpins our trade policy uh, limits limits our options. Um, it's opening our market is not a concession to be given in exchange for uh, market access abroad. It's really uh, good unto itself. But that's how trade is sold to the public, and, and it's been sold that way. In fact, the, the, the thing we most commonly hear on the radio is the trade account. You know, oh, good news, you know, the trade deficit uh, declined this month. Or bad news, the trade deficit increased. Um, 
even the former U.S. Trade Representative, Susan Schwab, and she's not the only one. Some of her predecessors and other policymakers have made this argument. But in trying to promote the three uh, uh, pending bilateral agreements that we have, she makes the point that in aggregate, uh, that we have a trade surplus. Uh, all, all, the, all of the agreements negotiated during the Bush years, if you add up the exports and imports, we have a trade surplus with those countries, as though that is the mark of success. That's the metric. And the, one of the problems with that metric is that it doesn't take much to look at our $800 billion overall trade deficit to conclude that trade policy is losing, is failing. So uh, I, I think we're selling ourselves short by predicating policy on, on that. I mean, look, 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 look at Japan. Uh, Japan has had more than a lost decade. It's had a trade surplus for, for, for a couple of decades. Uh, but the, the object of policy should be uh, economic growth, not trade balance or trade surplus. Um, President Bush has even made, ma even made this mistake. He was standing before the United Nations uh, a couple of years ago during one of Doha's uh, respites. Uh, and he was holding a, a WTO report one of these uh, tra trade policy reports that evaluate WTO members and their economies. And the report said the United States is, has been successful, has, has a very dynamic economy, uh, and, uh, and it has experienced good levels of growth, primarily because it is open to imports and it's open to investment. So President Bush was waving that and said, this is why the United States stands ready to open our markets further as long as others do the same. The, the point really is that we don't need others to do the same uh, in order to reap the benefits uh, of trade. Really, where is, the, where is the credibility to reciprocity when really most trade liberalization over the past couple of decades has happened unilaterally? Countries like Australia and New Zealand and Hong Kong and Singapore, China, India, Chile, Mexico liberalized considerably uh, without need of, of trade agreements. Uh, this kind of thing has been going on for, 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 for quite a while. In fact, two-thirds of liberalization in developing countries between 1983 and 2003 was done unilaterally. Countries recognize that it's in their interest to have low barriers, uh, and they go ahead and do it. Uh, where is the credibility to the exports good, imports bad argument when virtually every WTO member maintains uh, average tariffs that are well below their bound rates? In other words, they apply tariffs that are much lower than they have to, according to the agreement, because they know that imports are good for their economy, they're good for their producers, they're good for other interests. And it, the tricky part is getting countries to lock into these commitments. And as I think right now one of the reasons we're having problems in the Doha round is because countries want to have it both ways. They want to be able to apply low rates and then, when uh, politically necessary, do, do a little bit of backsliding. So I think governments know that lower barriers and fewer frictions are necessary for, for economic survival. Uh, their businesses and consumers are increasingly reliant on imported materials, uh, components, and capital equipment. In fact, if you look at our import statistics, uh, for the past few years, U.S. producers have accounted for more than half of U.S. import value for the past few years. And we always hear the trade deficit uh, signaled as, as, a, as an indication of our profligate ways. It's really uh, U.S. producers who are linked into the, to the global economy who rely on, on, on components that are doing most of, most of that importing. Um, so I think in the 21st century it's inaccurate to characterize trade as, uh, or global competition as, as us versus them.
because of foreign direct investment, because of global supply chains, uh, transnational production processes, uh, we are more often collaborating uh, before we're competing. Uh, it's the, today's global economic condition, uh, uh, situation is less likely to feature our producers against their producers. It's really entities that defy national interests. They're supply chains that involve U.S. value-added and Mexican and Singaporean and Japanese and Chinese competing against other supply chains similarly situated. So, so there is competition between supply chains, but first there is collaboration uh, among entities within the supply chains. So this new commercial reality, I think, demands policies that are welcoming, uh, uh, clearly uh, welcoming of imports and foreign investment and that minimize regulations uh, and administrative frictions that are based on misconceptions about some vague national interest. Uh, there have been signs in recent years that perhaps policymakers are beginning to understand this, those as evidenced by this unilateral liberalization that I referred to. But this year's and last year's global economic recession, I think, has, has made policymakers uh, doubt, doubt themselves a little bit. It's tested their understanding. In the United States, that uh, testing of the understanding that openness is good is manifest in our re reaction to GMs and Chrysler's situations and uh, our stimulus package, which included these Buy American provisions. If you recall, a few months ago, before the bankruptcies of the two auto companies, President Obama said, if you're considering buying a car, uh, I hope it will be an American car. Now, that raises a whole lot of concerns for me that the president would advocate specific kinds of purchases. But uh, what is an American car? We've had this debate this year. We don't know what an American car is. People have various definitions. But we do know that foreign nameplate producers account for about half of production in the United States, about half of sales in the United States. They employ American workers. They pay local taxes, contribute to local charities. They're very much enmeshed uh, in the fiber of our, of our communities. So uh, it's, and in fact, a lot of cars that are made uh, at, in, in Nissan's plants in Tennessee or Honda's in Ohio, uh, the content, there's more U.S. content than there is in cars made by what so-called Big Three or Detroit-made producers. The truth of the auto business is that it really, it does transcend <coughs> national boundaries. Uh, you know, it's not just the auto industry, it's many other industries. We have, you know, Dell is a well-known American brand, Nokia, a very well-known Finnish brand, neither of those companies makes uh, many of its products at home. They're, there's production sharing around the world. Uh, the, 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 the ideas might, might come from labs in the United States and in, in, in Finland, but production sharing makes these, these, these products defy a national identification. They really are you know, made on earth. And what does it mean? Uh, to uh, nowadays to conduct trade policy on behalf of U.S. producers. And we just talked about the auto industry. Uh, what about the steel industry? The, US, the largest U.S. steel producer is a majority Indian-owned company, uh, Middle Steel, ArcelorMittal, with, with headquarters in Luxembourg. The largest German steel company, ThyssenKrupp, is in the process of completing a $3.7 billion greenfield investment in Alabama, creating 2,700 new jobs. U.S. Steel Corporation, iconic U.S. Steel, uh, generates about 25% of its revenue from, uh, from steel it makes in Serbia and Slovakia. So it's hard to identify what an American company is. Uh, the, the metrics are, are, are wavering. 
people have different different definitions. The Buy American provisions that were in, included with the the, uh, the stimulus bill, the American Reinvestment Act, I believe it's called, um, actually excludes all of California's steel industry from participating in government procurement projects. That's because California's steel producers don't make don't melt steel. They don't really make the steel. They roll it. They have ro uh, rolling mills in California. But they roll hot rolled steel from imported slab from places like Brazil or Russia or Canada. But the definition of Buy American, according to the Buy American provisions, steel has to be melted and mixed in the United States. So California's entire steel industry can't participate. It's not American enough. Uh, so that, that's a bit of a problem. There's a company called Deferco in Pennsylvania which, which rolls similarly to what I just described for California, rolls from imported slab. And its biggest customer is a company called Wheatland Tube which is right next door to it. But Wheatland Tube uh, terminated its relationship with Deferco because Deferco, because it couldn't segregate uh, its, its products. It couldn't say for sure this is an American uh, slab versus a Canadian slab. So here's, here, here are good intentions, I suppose you call them, under Buy American, leading to American businesses losing business. I think one of the most prominent examples you've probably heard about in terms of uh, transnational production supply chains is, is the Apple iPod. You may have read about it. Um, my colleague Dan Griswold has a new book out called Mad About Trade, and I've heard it cited in other places. But if you look at the back of your iPod, it says, uh, designed by Apple in California, assembled in China. And really what that, this really speaks to this broader trend, which I try to talk about in this paper. Uh, Ideas that are hatched in American labs come to fruition, uh, ultimately at the end, by China, uh, in China, where they assemble components that are made, some in the United States, some in Japan, some in Singapore, Korea, and Taiwan. Cost about $150 to make an iPod. A few dollars of that 150 is Chinese value added. And when we import that $150 iPod, it registers as an import, and it adds to our bilateral trade deficit with China, $150. But in fact, if three, four, five dollars worth is Chinese value added. The rest is U.S. value added. Uh, actually, the rest, primarily it's Japanese because they have the most sophisticated, they produce the most sophisticated components. But then the product is marked up, another $150 here. Uh, and that markup accrues to, primarily to Apple. They pay, there's retailers uh, uh, take some of that profit. Uh, there's, some goes for distribution. But Apple retains a lot of that profit and it's an, it enables Apple to continue to hire and employ engineers to make the next generation of these products. So, whereas some people lament the, the big bilateral trade deficit that we have with China, I think the bi bilateral accounting is, is really is meaningless. A uh, recent study at the USITC, so several economists have been working on this, trying to disaggregate, disaggregate the composition of, of, of value in Chinese imports. And the latest report is that about 50% of the value of a typical container of cargo unloaded in Long Beach, California, for example, is Chinese value added. The rest is value added for the United States, Australia, Singapore, <coughs> Japan, on and on. So when we hear ideas like I heard the other day uh, from a University of Chicago professor, no less, uh, resuscitating the Schumer-Graham idea of imposing a 27.5% tax on all imports from China, although this man pr proposed a 10% tax. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. He's, he's trying to, he thinks he's punishing the Chinese uh, by imposing a 10% duty, but of course he's hurting U.S. consumers, but he's also hurting producers around the world 
who ship parts to, to China where, where things are assembled. So the, the, the Apple iPod story is, speaks to a broader um, trend. The, the James Fallows of the Atlantic speaks of something called the smiley curve, uh, where you know, it's just a smile. And uh, it's plotted this way. The vertical axis is, is value of production, and the horizontal axis is stage of production. And the United States, in this process, has uh, the higher value-added <coughs> employment uh, functions. The engineering and the design here, you know, the marketing and the, the retail and the servicing at, on the ends here. And then here, you've got you know, assembly and low-value component production. That's mostly happening in, in China. So there is a real complementarity to our relationship that exists beyond, beyond Apple and to you know, many other products. So um, I'm not totally opposed to reciprocity. Um, I, I don't think it's necessary. It's good to have reciprocal agreements. If we want to open our markets and other countries want to do the same, it's better to have more markets open. The problem with reciprocity is that it entails compromises. We might want to go much further in liberalizing, and our trade partners don't want to, and then we agree to some happy medium, which means that we don't liberalize as much as we wanted to. Uh, and interests get left behind. Uh, chosen interests are, are gone to bat for by policymakers, and other interests sort of bear the, bear the costs. So let me just uh, conclude with what I think trade policy should, should, should really be about. Countries, governments really are not competing with each other for, for markets anymore. Governments really are competing for investment and to be part of this global supply chain, to be part of this hub-and-spoke system. And the way to do that is to eliminate frictions to the best, best of your ability, to have policies that are inviting of investment uh, and of human capital, because that is the way countries will migrate up the value chain. We used to talk about comparative advantage, or Ricardo spoke about comparative advantage in terms of industries. The, the Portuguese winemakers produce and, and trade their excess with the, with the English cloth makers. Today, we don't, we don't think in terms, we shouldn't think in terms of industries, comparative advantage in industries, but comparative advantage, comparative advantage in uh, functions on the supply chain. Right now, we're at the top. We have good policies. We have a head start. We have good rules, good institutions here, which attract the kind of investment and these kinds of activities that keep us at the top. But other countries are, are gunning for us, and that's what they should be doing. But the, the countries that adopt the best policies uh, will be the ones that move up, up the value chain. So we, we need to keep uh, an openness to investment and imports, uh, and, and we need to have an open immigration policy. We need to attract all of the components necessary to stay on top, and knowing that other countries are, are, are doing the same. So we do that with a trade policy that is neutral, not one that goes to bat for producers at the expense of other interests, <coughs> other nodes in the supply chain. Uh, it, it may be a while before this argument prevails here in this, in this body in Congress, but I think it's something we really should think about. We really need to stop thinking in terms of producers defined by nation states. The world is much different today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. Um, you said that the institutions were strong in the U.S. and they're, they're relatively free and open and good. Um, I hope during the Q&A you'll turn to some ways that we could improve those. Um, so, so our second speaker today is Eric Autor uh, with the National Retail Federation. He was named Vice President and International Trade Council in 1998. 
He serves as the principal advisor on international trade, customs, and supplier compliance issues to the NRF and its member companies, which include the leading department, specialty, discount, mass merchandise, internet, and independent stores. Previously, he was with the, er, he was the International Trade Council, and then after that, Senior International Trade Council on the Republican staff of the U.S. Senate Committee on Finance, <coughs> and he was also the inter, an International Trade Associate in the Washington office of the law firm Skadden, Arps, Slate, Meager, and Flom. And prior to that, he was law clerk to uh, a judge at the U.S. Court of International Trade in New York. He has JD and LLM degrees in foreign and international law at Duke University Law School. He was a member of the editorial staff of the Alaska Law Review and later served as managing editor. And he has honors degrees, uh, an honors degree in European history from UCLA and a master of science degree in European studies from the London School of Economics. Mr. Arctor. Uh Thank you, if and you uh, thank you for the invitation. Can you use the podium? Um, actually, if it's okay, can I speak from like here? Yeah. Um, uh, Thanks for that uh, introduction and for the invitation to speak today. I, I, I just want to add a little something to my resume, just so you don't think I'm sort of this airy-fairy sort of theoretical person. Um, I actually have, uh, you know, gotten my fingers dirty, so to speak. I, when I was young, I've, I've worked in a factory. I have worked construction. I've done blue-collar work. I have... Um, my father was a Teamster shop steward. I was a member of the Teamster union for a brief time also. So um, I, I just wanted to add that to my, to my resume. Um, as I said, um, I'm, I'm with the National Retail Federation. We represent the retail industry. And one of the reasons why I, I think I was asked to, to follow on um, Dan's um, discussion of his report, which I found really interesting, was that a lot of what's in this report, I think, is consistent with things that, that we in the retail industry have been saying about trade policy for, for um, some time now. Um, retailers, whether they are the largest companies like Walmart or our little mom-and-pop single-store operations, all rely on a global supply chain. Most of the products that are consumer goods, or many of the consumer goods that are sold in retail in the United States, are imported. Um, in addition, um, retailers aren't unique in this respect. Um, U.S. manufacturers, uh, U.S. farmers also rely on global supply chains. They have to import many of the inputs that they use to make their product, which they then often export to, um, to uh, their foreign customers. There's a lot of frustration currently with trade policy. Um, a, a lot of the frustration I don't think is terribly well articulated and in some instances is based upon, I think, premises that are not entirely accurate. But I think some, some of this misses the point that this paper really gets at. It's that we've, we've got a trade policy that's sort of stuck in the 1950s and the 1960s and really doesn't reflect what our economy is, how our economy operates today. We have a very mercantilist trade policy, as Dan said, that views exports as the main objective in trade policy uh, that really doesn't 
welcome imports, views them as a political inconvenience at best, and at worst something that really um, is, uh, hurts U.S. Uh, jobs and, uh, and the economy. Um, this is reflected, I think, in a, in, a, in a comment that I heard from a former USTR to the Finance Committee talking about, um, about some tra recent trade agreements that had been entered into. Um, and she said, um, these are great trade agreements. We didn't have to give anything up. And I think that that just really uh, encapsulates the whole problem with our trade policy. We need to recognize, as Dan said, that products, uh, we need to get away from this notion that production is the same as manufacturing. And we see that in, in a lot of different instances. Um, with respect to specific policies, let's take something that I'm very familiar with, textile and apparel trade policy. Our textile and apparel trade policy has for years been focused on benefiting one group within the entire value chain of textiles and apparel, and that is the U.S. textile industry, and largely ignores the interests of others in the value chain, including U.S. apparel manufacturers, U.S. apparel brands, and U.S. apparel retailers. Um, we also have a trade remedies regime. This is anti-dumping, countervailing duty, and safeguards that's largely focused on the notion that production is manufacturing and looks out for the interests of the manufacturer. And that just, that system doesn't work for the very reason that Dan said, is that most of the value added in production these days, and this is extremely true in consumer products, most of the value added is not in the manufacturing. The manufacturing is actually a very small portion of the value added. Most of the value added is in the research, development, design, and marketing. That is why a U.S. manufacturer like Nike, Nike's a shoe manufacturer that doesn't make a single shoe. They have somebody else manufacture it because the money for them is in the design and the marketing. You can't, you can't even call a company like Nike or, and you can come up with any number of companies that are in the similar position, you really can't even call them manufacturers. They're branding companies. And, uh, and they ha that, that is where they have uh, focused uh, their efforts. That's where the money is. And we have to have a trade policy that recognizes that. When we impose anti-dumping duties on a product where the value added, where the majority of the value added is actually in the United States, even though it happens to be manufactured, say, in China, all we're doing is hurting ourselves um, and potentially driving American jobs away as a result. We have many instances in the anti-dumping arena where we have imposed duties on a product from Japan or, or elsewhere uh, to protect a U.S. manufacturer and ended up harming a great many more American jobs as a result. A good example was the infamous case on flat panel screens, which effectively drove the entire uh, laptop, computer laptop industry offshore because they could not um, import the flat panel screens that they needed from Japan as a result of anti-dumping duties. What we need is a trade policy, as Dan said, that's really focused on what the realities of today's economy are. 
we need to support all American companies who are competing globally and, and who rely on, on, um, on global supply chains. That, that, is, that is the reality. Companies today can enhance their competitiveness through a global supply chain, and we need policies that really recognize and support that. We can't have, you know, Buy America provisions that handicap um, uh, American companies basically because they have such a narrow uh, definition of what is made in, in America. That, that's really an outdated notion. Um, there are very few things that are 100 percent pure made in the United States, and the number is decreasing all the time. Um, I was asked to give some other examples of, of where our trade policy needs to, needs to um, recognize, um, I think, the, the complex nature of production and the way that uh, supply chains work. Uh, again, I go to the textile and apparel realm um, where um, a few years ago, uh, after Vietnam had joined the World Trade Organization, the textile industry, uh, initiated a, uh, a safeguard action, um, and uh, and we were informed by USTR. We were brought in and said, um, "Good news. Um, we we you're not going to have any more uh, any more quotas on uh, Vietnam." Instead, uh, we've agreed to, imp to have a monitoring mechanism where we might file anti-dumping cases against Vietnam. And everyone said, you did what? Um, although th this was, we viewed this as even more potentially disruptive than quotas, the really disturbing thing about this is that we were, we, all of us, the apparel manufacturers, brands, and retailers were informed about this after the fact after it had, the deal had been cut with the textile industry to do this. And yet we represent many more jobs than they do. We also represent a much larger portion of the value added in the supply chain on textile and apparel production than they do. It this action could potentially very, have a much more devastating economic impact as a result on that larger portion of the value chain than any beneficial impact that it might have, and that would be very speculative for the textile industry. So, you know, if you look at that sort of thing, at our textile and apparel trade policy, uh, where, for instance, our free trade, one real problem that we've got with our preference programs and our free trade agreements on textiles and apparel is that they are designed to benefit mainly the textile industry through very restrictive rules of origin that basically say that you have to use, in some instances, only U.S.-made yarn or U.S.-made fabric in order to uh, have a qualifying garment under this program. Um, that ignores the interests of all the rest uh, in, uh, uh, of U.S companies in the value chain who really can't work under that sort of model because it's inconsistent with the way they do business. Um, and what it's done is it's effectively, effectively driven folks away from using 
our free trade agreements and our preference programs in some instances because of that. So I guess just to echo many of the, the points that Dan said, I, I, think, I think that we, what we need is it doesn't – all this doesn't render our trade policy obsolete, a, a trade policy obsolete. It, rep, it renders our current trade policy obsolete. What we need, need is a new model that is really focused on supporting, US, supporting companies who are competing in a, in a global economy through, and, and whose competitive, competitiveness is enhanced by reliance on global supply chains and to focus on how do we grow our economy rather than, as Dan said, how do we just promote U.S. exports. Because, you know, uh, and most people I don't think either don't realize this or, or don't really uh, care to uh, consider it, but imports, imports provide a huge um, economic benefit in the United States. The ability to import makes U.S. Job, uh, companies in many instances more competitive globally, allows them to, to grow jobs, grow their businesses, and, uh, and imports actually support millions of jobs in the United States. There's a lot of concern about the hollowing out of the U.S. manufacturing base and the fact that we're losing blue-collar jobs. The, the interesting thing in a globalized economy with global supply chains is that it's very clear that the blue-collar jobs of the future in this country are is in moving goods. Some of the highest paid blue-collar jobs in this country, union jobs, are in that area, in the supply chain realm. Dock workers on the West Coast are some of the highest paid blue-collar workers in the country. Uh, before the before the economic crisis, uh, uh, crane, top crane operators in the Port of Los Angeles and Long Beach, whose responsibility are for picking up these cargo containers off a ship and drop, dropping them on a truck chassis or on a flatbed, were making $400,000 a year. I mean, that, granted, is an extreme example, but the fact is, is whether you look at our port workers, our warehousemen, our truckers, our, our railroad workers, everyone who's responsible for moving goods. These are very good jobs and are, and are very uh, well compensated, even when compared to manufacturing jobs. And these are people who are working and are help make the global supply chain run. And that's the sort of thing also that we need to have a trade policy to support the, the, those uh, sorts of jobs and that, type, and that business that really greases the wheels of U.S. commerce. And I'll stop there and entertain any questions. Thank you.